Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Father Tom Fanta is a voice of clarity and compassion in a world too full of noise and anger. He's a powerful preacher and storyteller who openly welcomes gay people into his flock and challenges the Catholic Church to be more welcoming to all. He gave one of the best Christmas sermons I've ever heard when he stood up and spoke to us as if he were the innkeeper who turned away the Holy Family that first Christmas. I didn't know who you were, he kept saying. Father Tom knows most of us don't recognize God, who is right in front of us, in the elderly driver with his left blinker on for 10 miles, or the gay teenager struggling to be accepted, or the single mother overwhelmed by bills. Tom Fanton never set out to be a priest. He grew up the fourth of eight kids in North Olmsted, graduated from John Carroll University with a degree in business. He has a Master's of Divinity degree from St. Mary's Seminary School of Theology and a Doctorate of Preaching from the Aquinas Institute, St. Louis, Missouri. He's been a pastor of St. Dominic Church in Shaker Heights since 2001, where everyone calls him Father Tom. And he's here to talk about keeping the faith during difficult times. Father Tom, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Regina. Thanks for inviting me. Well, first of all, I've wondered how you've done during this pandemic time. You know, I imagine that when you get up there and preach and you do such a great job of it, you have this packed congregation. And now what form is it taking for you? So with our live stream format, there's about eight musicians who are spread 20 feet apart from each other, each of them with a mask on, and three or four staff members, each of them with a mask on. So I kind of envision in my mind the people in the pews uh, Catholics, like I suppose most people when they go to church, always sit in the same place. And so I kind of envision this family that sits here, this single person here, and I kind of put that in the back of my head as I'm preaching and hoping they're listening, hoping they're hearing what I'm saying. It's so funny you mentioned where they sit because my mom always sat on the St. Mary side at Immaculate Conception. My dad always sat on the St. Joe side, and they never went together because they had 11 children and we had to split up everybody so we wouldn't kill each other in the pews. I love that you can envision the people there. But I know as a preacher, you also feed off the energy of the crowd, so to speak. So how do you get your energy now? So it's, 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 a, it's a great challenge. Uh, the, the one maybe unique thing, I'm getting my energy after the Mass because in our church parking lot, we give out communion after Mass for about an hour and a half. And we'll have close to 500 people that will come. So I get to see the faces that day, but not until after the service. And so I I kind of almost anticipate that during the Mass, thinking, well, in about a half hour, I'll get to see their faces. So how do you give communion to all those people without worrying about you getting COVID? How do you take care of yourself? I actually don't. Uh, I had cancer a few years back, and so I have a little compromised immune system. So we have four ministers who wear masks, gloves, plastic shields over their faces, uh, who all work for me, uh, work at the parish here, the staff. And so it's kind of delightful for all of us to see the people that we serve on Sundays. It's almost like a hazmat crew giving out communion. (laughs) Father Tom, I love the story of the first time someone called you Father Tom, and you weren't even a priest, and you haven't even thought about being a priest. Tell us about that child named Charlie who called you Father Tom. So I was volunteering. I was working down at uh, Kaiser Foundation, and they gave us some time off to do community service. And I was helping some young boys tutoring over at Urban Community School on the near west side. And 
I was really enjoying my work with them. And one night, one of the boys said to me, Father Tom, are you coming back tomorrow? Now, here I was uh, working in an office as an accountant. I said, what did you call me? He goes, well, Father Tom. And I said, I'm not, I'm not a priest. I'm just a volunteer. And he said, well, you sure act like one. And it kind of freaked me out, kind of changed my life. And I wonder if that, I don't know, that boy was your first indication, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, in my family, we had five boys in my family. My older brother was always going to be the priest, not me. So determined that my older brother is married with three children now, but I had never really thought about it my whole life. And that young man put it in my head. So let's talk a little bit about your childhood. You grew up on Brendan Lane, dead end, and there was a church at the dead end. You got it. Sort of like God saying, okay, Tom, I'm here, right? (laughs) My mom and dad chose the the street so they wouldn't have to drive us anywhere. I love it. And then you went to St. Ignatius High School. And I love that you were robbed on the way to school. You've been robbed a lot in your life. I have been. <laughs> what is that about? Easy mark. I guess I have a friendly face. <laughs> you studied math at Marquette University, and there you were robbed of everything. You came back to your room, and it was empty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I said, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I don't like Milwaukee all that much. I'm just going to go home. I'm going to go back to Cleveland and go to John Carroll, stick with the Jesuits, who I love, and uh, continue my education there. So why did you leave Marquette? Was it because the degree wasn't right or because that experience being robbed? A combination of everything. It was not, it wasn't the you know, safest place. It was at the time, at the time it was not, it's, it is now, but at that time it was kind of a big city in transition. And I guess I just never felt comfortable there. I never really connected. I don't know why. Uh, it was far from everything, far from my family, who I'm very close with. And, uh, and the program itself at that time was not all that great. And knowing that John Carroll's business school is far better than most Jesuit business schools, I thought, why don't I just go home? So you go to John Carroll, you study accounting, you pass your CPA, and you're at this Jesuit university. I got my master's degree at John Carroll, and it felt like a holy place. Did you feel any sense of that when you were there, or were you pretty solid-minded, focusing on math? And I really didn't. I, I didn't live on campus. I lived over at Shaker Square, so I really didn't involve myself in all that much. But those Jesuits sneak in. I think that infiltrates. They sneak in. Lots of conversations with them. What was the one moment where you said, okay, God, I'm yours. I'll do this. I'll be a priest. So I suppose I say that every day. But I was living at Shaker Square. I went to a church there at Shaker Square. I'd been away from the church for several years in college. I went and the priest and the servers were all lined up. And I walked in the door and he said, we need a reader. I go, what do you mean? You need to, I need you need to read the first reading at mass, the priest said. And I said, no, I don't even belong here. I don't want to be part of this. I'm just coming to church. And he goes, well, you can't read. So what could I say? He handed me the, you know, the Bible book and I said, okay, here goes nothing. And so I, I read at that mass and it felt good. I then went on a quest of talking to different priests from my childhood, asking them about their life. I was still working downtown. I went over the cathedral. There was a priest there, Ted Marzell. I had a conversation with him one day, and I was basically struggling with, you know, are you happy? Is this a good life? And he said to me, what makes me happy might not make you happy. Why don't you quit talking about this and just go do it? If you don't like it, you can just leave and go back to your other life. And it was like kind of a simple piece of advice, but it was profound. It changed my life. 
So you were ordained May 28th, 1988. And I've been to a couple of ordinations as a reporter. And I wonder, what is it like you're laying face down in front of the altar there? What is it like inside when that moment happens? What in God's name am I doing? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> uh, there's a great sense of peace, I have to say. But there's also a big question mark is, I cannot do this without God. God has got to be the center of my life. And at that moment, yeah, it's pretty scary. I suppose just like maybe some people feel when they're exchanging vows, getting married, you know. Or when they bring the baby home from the hospital for the first time, you think, oh my gosh, here I am a parent. What does it mean? <laughs> yes. So what have been the most difficult parts of being a priest? Uh, when you feel like you're doing your best, and for some people it's not enough. You get a hundred compliments on a homily and one person says something negative and it's all you remember. It's all you remember. You know, you try to give your all, you try to do your best and there's always someone who's not happy with it. That's just a daily kind of struggle. And you have so many people. How many people in your congregation at St. Dominic's? We have about 1,700 households, which is about 6,000 people. It's a lot of people to keep happy. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the most joyful parts of being a priest? The joyful are doing a wedding at St. Dominic and then four years later uh, doing the child's baptism. I've been here a long time celebrating the First Communion, honestly, celebrating Grandma's funeral and, and bringing this family closer to God. You know, I come from a big family and I look at my parish as a big family. And so kind of celebrating those sacred moments in their lives, that's really humbling, but it's a great honor for me. That's interesting because when I think about the church I grew up in, Immaculate Conception Church in Ravenna, you know, everything happened there. Every birth, every, I mean, every baptism, every confirmation, every relative buried there. It, it is like this home for a family from the, the timeline markers. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So I wonder too, when I grew up, you know, the idea of a priest, you were like God. And then the whole pedophile scandal happened these last years that had been unraveled. And I wonder for you as a priest, do you feel that people look at you differently today than they did when you were first ordained? I personally maybe have not had that overall experience because I'm a big people person. I talk to people a lot. Uh, I feel like right from the very beginning, I called out the hierarchy, you know, in homilies I was ashamed of their actions. I was bothered by the fact that they kept asking us to apologize when I didn't do anything untoward or wrong. And I felt like they're the ones that needed to apologize. And so by expressing my own rage, my own horror, my own embarrassment, I think I felt like I had the same feelings as my congregation did. And I said it freely from the altar. And I think that I've always admired for that. I know the community I live in, Cleveland Heights, near Shaker Heights, that's what I hear is that you are that voice for the people in the pews, not the hierarchy. Let's talk about your own faith. You sent me a couple of things that you've been through in life that I want to go over. One of the biggest life-altering events happened 23 years ago when you were a priest at St. Christopher in Rocky River. Tell us about this moment in time that really challenged your faith, maybe for the first biggest time ever. My parents actually lived in Westlake at the time, and my father had stopped by my rectory uh, to pick up something. And shortly thereafter, I had a phone call from the Rocky River police. They told me that my father had gotten sick in traffic. 
and that maybe I could go pick up my mom. I pick up my mom. We go to Lakewood Hospital, and they say, oh, Father Tom, they knew me there. They said, come, we're going to have you wait in this little room. And the minute we got to the little room, I know the little room. I spent a lot of time in the little room. I knew it wasn't a good message. And I really felt like my whole world kind of turned upside down. My father was young. We were very close. We were good friends. And I had to celebrate his funeral mass. But more importantly, I had to come back to work the next day to maybe some crabby old people and thinking to myself, why didn't they die? Selfish young people because they wanted to know what time they could get into church to put the flowers for their wedding uh, without even expressing a moment of sympathy to me. And I just wasn't there. It was, I was in an empty place, yet I had to keep getting up and offering a prayer to God who really had kind of disappointed me. And so I can't say I ever didn't believe in God, but I was sure angry and maybe most importantly, disappointed and confused. That last visit with your dad, your dad was 67, which isn't, I don't know, how old are you right now? I am 59. Okay. So just a few years older than you, right? Yes. I mean, it's kind of strange to get older and close to that date. So he was 67 and he pulled, he left you and then I think had a heart attack. Is that correct? Yes, right at the red light and just died instantly. Oh my gosh. Was there anything about that last visit that you've kind of poured over as far as your last uh, moment uh, with your dad? You know what? My dad was very good at uh, telling <laughs> us, reminding us that he loved us. When I was very young, the night before my first communion, my father had a massive heart attack at age 35 or whatever he was. And so he lived a very different life in that not carrying grudges, knowing that at any moment this could happen. And so uh, I always felt like every moment with him was treasured. Uh, And I didn't really, even if I argued with him when I left, it was always resolved. And so when I, my father, it's just a strange thing to say, but my father always would tell us, you don't know the day or the hour, so be prepared. And so when this happened, those words just rang in my head. My father was prepared. He was always prepared. Wow. My dad used to say, when the Lord says, come, you don't get to say, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. there's, there's that moment. So, so you're a priest, but you're a human being. And I think sometimes we have put priests at a place where we expect them to always be on for us. Correct. Correct. And you've just lost the key person in your life. Yes, yes. And so you're also expected to believe bigger than everybody in God. So how, what was your faith journey like through that time? So we'll kind of move, you know, kind of moved. I began to maybe pay even more attention to people in the pews. And I would see people who had lost a child, who had lost a spouse. And maybe for the first time in my life, I really understood what they were feeling but they were still there and they were okay. And I began to see this bigger picture of believers or people coming to church, even when it's really hard to believe. And I was one of them now, you know? And so it was a, it was a eye-opening thing that, but it was a wonderful thing. I think it helped me to be a better priest. And your prayer life, did it change because of your anger at God? I didn't pray all that much. <laughs> <laughs> the silent <laughs> treatment. You don't talk to people you're mad at, you know. <laughs> so how did you make peace with God? You know, I do believe time heals things. And after I got off the initial shock, I began to think maybe rather than why did God take my father? I began to think, 
why was I given my father for so many years? So I was blessed. That's beautiful. And and it's kind of nice you didn't have some big lightning bolt moment of everything getting better. That yeah, you just no. had to kind of trudge through it like most people do. All of us, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then you're on this great journey. You've got this beautiful congregation. And then a few years ago, what are the symptoms you started to get that you were getting sick? So I, I, you know, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I'm a runner. I work out. And I, I had this stomach cramp that just wasn't going away for about a week. And being a healthy person, I don't, I don't really go to doctors all that much, but I knew this wasn't normal. And so I made some phone calls to parishioners. They sent me to a gastroenterologist. He said, let's do a, you know, colonoscopy, an endoscopy. And he calls me later that day and says, you have three masses and you need to start chemo immediately. And so here I was, a person, uh, I always said I was a chaplain to the chemo club, to the cancer club, but now I was a member of the club. And I had to make a decision. Uh, I had the option of taking a leave of absence and you know, going to stay with my brother and going to these treatments or staying where I was. And uh, actually, I called a good friend of mine, Bishop Kello, the former Bishop of Cleveland, and he said, Tom, you don't know what the future brings you. This is your family. Stay with them and share it with them. And so I made the decision to just stay at St. Dominic's and do what I can. I think in the five months of chemo, I missed three masses. I had mass every weekend. I, I felt like the, my family of St. Dominic prayed me through this, cards and notes and meals and I just tried to be honest with them throughout the whole thing. And a good friend of mine in the midst of it was a woman uh, whose, whose memory just inspired me, uh, was a woman named Martha Mahoney, who had died of breast cancer just a few years, very close friend of mine. And she would always say, when people asked her how she was doing, she would always say, I'm just living my life. I'm just living my life. And I kind of use that as my motto in all of this, just living my life, doing the best I can. Everybody's got something. Everybody's got something. Well, let me pause for just a moment. We're at the halfway mark already. I want to pause and thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Father Tom Fanta, pastor at St. Dominic's. I know you have many podcast choices, and I'm grateful you chose to listen to mine. Was it lymphoma that it was diagnosed? Correct, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay. And you've got this great support around you, but it's a really difficult journey. I mean, your chemo was pretty severe, right? The the side effects? Correct. Correct. And actually, uh, my very first time sitting down in the big room at UH waiting to go in, and there was a, a elderly African-American woman sitting there with a head wrap on, obviously bald and thin. And she turned to me and said, first timer, huh? And I said, yeah, this is my first time. And she goes, it's not so bad. I've been doing it for 17 years. Oh. And I said, wow. And she said, just trust in God. And she didn't know who I was. And it was kind of like my sign was my sign. That's what I have to do. And throughout my journey of that, I met many beautiful people going into chemo, coming out of chemo. I got lost in the basement of university hospitals one time looking for the radiation lab. And Same here, same here. <laughs> this elderly janitor put down his mop. And I think he walked me a half mile to get to the place. And I, I just felt like all along there were people like that that really God sent to me. So it was really a sacred time. 
You know, it really is. You know, I had cancer in 1998 and uh, went through chemo, went through radiation, same thing, university hospitals. And my chemo was called cytotoxin, adriamycin, and 5-FU. And I always said every cancer drug should have the FU behind it. <laughs> it's like your fight against it. But, exactly. but it is quite a journey. And it, there is a sacredness to it. Um, and it's weird, but there are these rare gifts or these different kind of gifts. And I wonder for you, that woman, to say, I've been doing it for 17 years, like, whoa, yeah. have faith. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you now are able to um, minister to people with cancer, do you do it differently? I think I do because I, I feel like I make it okay to feel sick. I make it okay to feel lousy. I make it okay to talk about God and really believe it when I'm telling them that God will give you what you need when you need it. Telling them it's okay. Uh, if you can't pray, uh, invite them to fake it, you know, until they make it. <laughs> uh, that, uh, and I, I guess for me, uh, this goes back to my kind of Ignatian background, but you know, at the end of every day, I would reflect on the day and try to find moments where God reared his head or peeked into my life. And it can be very small things, but I think it was very encouraging to people. It continues to be encouraging to people. That's beautiful. You can get kind of self-centered when you are sick because every, every little side effect you, you focus on. And so I started a prayer journal and every day I would write in prayers for other people. And it, it helped me take the focus off of whatever I was going through. And I'd see a headline and I'd cut it out and put it in my prayer journal. So that idea of writing and, and like I love you to say when you said God kind of tucked himself into your life, you know, where are those moments? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And to uncover those. I also want to talk a little bit about the current environment of race in our country and how it's kind of un- revealed itself in your congregation, because you had a lot of people in the African-American community, their churches were shuttered by the bishop, the size of the, the diocese. So you ended up with, I think, St. Henry, Epiphany, and St. Cecilia, and St. Jude that correct. were closed. And those communities were near St. Dominic's, is that correct? Correct. All surrounding us. Yes. So you have a probably fairly white community that's now taking in an African-American community. Correct. Correct. Yes. How was that transition for everybody? I'm a little backstory here. So when I, I'm, I grew up on the West side, never saw a white, a black person growing up, went to Ignatius. There were two black people in my class, went to Marquette, a little more mixed, but then came back to John Carroll view. My first three parishes we're all white. I never served an African-American. Came to St. Dominic and had a series of listening sessions. And w- one of those listening sessions, <clears throat> African-American woman, Joy Smith, told me, Father Tom, I've been coming here for years, and I feel like everybody is very polite to me, but I never feel welcome. <sighs> and it kind of struck me, this is 20 years ago, and so I began to kind of going out of my way when I would see an African-American come to my church to find out their name and to find out their story. And I felt like I really began to establish with African-Americans. And so uh, about a year ago, uh, a white suburban mom came to visit me and she had gone to an REI workshop, Racial Equity Institute workshop and her whole life was turned upside down and she came to me uh, to share it with me and felt like we needed to bring it to our parish to open our eyes and I I was hesitant uh, because I thought well I'm nice to black people I don't know why we would have to do this but she was pretty convincing gave me some articles so let's do a test market let's have 
some small groups. So we had a focus group of about 12 parishioners, uh, black and white, and we began to read articles about this. We read an article about the Groundwater Project, a great article. We read about white privilege. We read about, you know, redlining and real estate. And in that conversation, we would talk about what the article meant to us. And a woman that I, I feel like I've been very friendly with for 20 years uh, was in the group. I feel like I've been more than polite. We're welcoming. I, I considered her a true friend. At one point, she just kind of uh, just began to talk about her rage and how hard it is to wake up every morning as an African-American woman and how she did all the right things. She went to Shaker School. She went to college. She had all the privileges, but she was still treated. And she's just so angry and so tired of being angry. And this switch just flipped in my head that, wow, I'm friendly to all these people, but I didn't know this was going on in their lives. It, it, it really, it really just opened my mind and my heart in ways that I never thought possible. And so I thought I need to bring this to the larger parish. Now, this is all before George Floyd, we were doing this. In March, we had a series before COVID set in and 300 people signed up to talk about racial equity, a gospel perspective. And my idea was that we're always talking about legislation, education and schools, but this is a faith thing. This is a faith issue. And so I thought, let's do it in the comfort of our, our church building. And 300 people signed up, the largest series we've ever had, 200 white, 100 African-American. And we started exploring this together and we started having conversations and we were, had two sessions, which were absolutely uh, amazing and healing and beautiful. And then COVID came and shut us down. But what a great opening that you created and to have so many people hungry for this. Totally hungry for it. And I think the very first night there was a young African-American man in his thirties and he walked into the room and he walked out and I thought, oh, maybe he's in the wrong place. So I followed him in the hallway and he was actually crying. And I said, you know, what's wrong? And he said, I thought it would just be all black people. I didn't know that white people cared so much about this. And then it started and it just kind of evolved in our community. So we kind of shut down that series one of the things we discovered, though, was that there's just a lot of pain out there. And so we begin to ask our African-American prisoners to share their pain. And we actually had a prayer service, a virtual prayer service in June, where we invited them to share their pain with us. We read a series of reflections. And again, I'm listening to this and think, God, I'm nice to all these people, but they're in so much pain. I don't know enough about this. And so I make it a, you know, a point every day to be reading, to be studying, to see how we're going to make this happen in my parish. Every week we send out an e-blast with articles about racial equity that have been very uh, overall, very well received. Once in a while, they're not well received. And about a month ago, my teenagers came to me, my youth group, and they wanted to paint a sign for the church that said Black Lives Matter. And I remember thinking, well, that's going a little too far. I'm not so sure my congregation is ready for that. Throughout COVID, we actually made yard signs that said, God's love is alive in all of us. So I said to the kids, 
why don't we paint a sign that says that? And they said, great idea, Father Tom, great idea. A couple nights later, I come to the gymnasium and the kids, there's 18 kids, it's 95 degrees. They have masks on and they're painting the sign. And it says, we believe that God's love is alive in all of us and that black lives matter. Okay, that is not what I thought this. I said, you know what? We're putting this sign up. Uh, uh, A few days later, I received an email from an elderly African-American man who moved to this community 50 years ago, came to St. Dominic, and the priest said his kind were supposed to join St. Cecilia's. He said he left the Catholic Church and never came back. The other day, he's driving down Van Aken. He sees the sign, and he pulls over the side of the road, and he starts to cry. And he was writing me to find out how he could come home. And it's clear that this man is in his 80s. And to me, if that sign just did that, it's important to me. That's beautiful. Oh, you're making me cry. My goodness. Well, you've got the bookends. You've got the youth and you've got the elderly and people that want to feel at home in the world and haven't because of the racism that's been just here ever since we brought people from Africa here, you know? Right, right. Mm-hmm. So we don't like, we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, Father Tom, I wonder, in the pain that you've heard, and, and my guess is you've heard so much more than the average person's going to hear because you're a priest and people maybe feel more there's a sacred sure. trust there. But of the pain that you've heard, what have you learned that the rest of us could do to be better, kind of better minister to, to black people in our lives, just as people we see at the grocery store, people we see at the park, what, however we experience other people in our lives, how can we be better? So one, one thing, uh, our parish has a big mission to El Salvador, about a thousand parishioners have gone there. And in our preparation meetings, I tell them that people in El Salvador uh, when they confront con- Caucasians, they automatically put their heads down. Uh, it's just their culture. And so I say, you have to say good morning. But when you say good morning, their faces light up. They're recognized as people. And I thought, I keep telling my prisoners to do that in El Salvador. Let's do that here. Let's do it at Heinen's. And I'm a big fan of the dollar store. And the dollar store by me is predominantly African-American. I go there a lot. But I know I can honestly say I would go there, I'd get my stuff and leave. And now I find myself talking to people in line. Is that a good product? How's your day going? And I see the same light in their eyes as I do in the light of the eyes of Salvadorans. And they just want to be recognized as my brother and sister. They don't want to be special. just want to be recognized. The same thing we all want. We all want to be recognized as, as people. And I think that that is a huge thing, simply to say hello in the store, simply to greet each other, to make eye contact. You know, I, I think in a more uh, you know, academic way, we need to learn more. We need to learn more about our true history and realize how that has affected so many things in our world. And then once we can acquire some empathy, then we think about engagement. How can we confront this system and change it in our own little ways? I would hope that my Catholic Church of St. Dominic 
could be a driving force in that, uh, a driving force in bringing about that community of change. It is beautiful, the idea of a community of change. I think some people think it's just on a political landscape that we change things. And I, I feel like for many of us, that's not what we're called. But every day, like you said, at the dollar store, to have conversations, to greet people. I think sometimes we just need to see people. I can't tell you how many times I've almost bumped into somebody or driving my car. I'm like, oh, I need to stop. And I almost say I didn't see you. And I think, wow, how am I not seeing people right in front of me? And I think the pandemic is a golden opportunity with so many people going for walks. Right. Acknowledge someone, you know, say hello. You're right. Um, you make it, you make it very simple, and I, but profound. Those moments that you shared with those teenagers and uh, the elderly. Well, Father Tom, I want to thank you for being a guest. Tell us the best way to connect with you on social media. You have a website for St. Dominic's. St. Dominic's church.net, which lists all of our programs. We have a daily live stream service as well as a Sunday live stream that will continue indefinitely. That's the best way to find out what happens at St. Dominic. And actually the the Lenten series I spoke of is going to be virtual in October uh, through Zoom meetings, and there'll be registrations online. If you'd like to join us in those conversations, we'd love to have you. All right. And I'll have links to that on my website, reginabrett.com as well. And I got to say, my biggest takeaway today is to really just be present fully with the person in front of you and speak to them like a brother or sister, no matter what race, no matter what background. And that's kind of like how to cross that bridge. Um, Father Tom, let's close with your answer to this question. What is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? The prayer of gratitude. Uh, every day at the end of my day, whatever someone might call it, the Ignatian examine, what I talked about before, but I try to find three things that I am grateful for that day because I, uh, along the way, a spiritual director said to me, if you go to bed with a grateful heart, you'll wake up with one. And so it's what I do every night before I go to sleep. That is just beautiful. Well, I am grateful you uh, were willing to be a guest and uh, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, Regina. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.